I don't know if there is a better word for it, but the concept of shiny object syndrome, of just being so curious about so many things and wanting to learn new things and have new experiences has made me certainly a more interesting person to outsiders, but also more interesting to myself to to have had so many different types of experiences and want to learn so many things is I think uh, one of the things that makes it joyful for me to be alive and uh, to have success and an interesting life. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast. ADHD for smart-ass women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 223 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyotsuka.com. You know that my purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something, not one. And so for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Rachel Floyd. Rachel is a writer, a home cook, a sometimes gardener, real estate investor, a scuba diver, and a multi-passionate entrepreneur. Her career in anti-hunger, community nutrition, and food safety has spanned a decade. She holds a bachelor's degree from the Evergreen State College, where she studied food systems and food policy. Currently, her day job is in child nutrition, where she manages federal programs and grants supporting kids in Washington State. Rachel also founded a small publishing company called Little Bison Press, which publishes activity books for children based on national parks. She grew up near Fresno, California, but Western Washington is now home where she lives with her husband, her ADHD husband, Brian. You can tell Brian this. I wrote down, with her ADHD husband, Brain... (laughs) And a small flock of chickens. Rachel lives... Unfortunately, with chronic back pain left over from a car accident that she was in as a teenager, and she's starting graduate school for the second time in April 
of this year. And we're going to talk about all of that. However, the reason Rachel is here is because someone in our big giant Facebook community of, I haven't checked it lately, but it's over 85,000 members, sent me a Facebook link to a post that Rachel had written and said, this woman has ADHD and she needs to be on the podcast. And this is what the Facebook post said. Today is book release day for Tastes Like Shit. She was talking about the book, Tastes Like Shit, the unofficial Shit's Creek cookbook that she co-wrote with her sister, Hannah Floyd. Rachel went on in the post to say, it's been so fun to see independent bookstores across the U.S. post images of our book among today's new releases. I've seen the parody cookbook Hannah and I wrote, sandwiched between Ina Garten and Milk Street's new books. It's been laid out next to the long-anticipated Cormac McCarthy novel and by the latest diary of a wimpy kid. My son would have loved that. It's real and it's out there in physical form and in people's hands. And for two dreamers who always planned on being authors, it's a very big day. Of course, I ran out, bought the book, and promptly booked Rachel. So Rachel, that was really long-winded, but did I get all of it right? That is all correct, yes. And it sounds like a lot when you say it all back to me. (laughs) Everybody says that who comes on the podcast. It's like, oh my gosh, have I done all of that? Yep. Uh I'm a lot more accomplished than I think I am. (laughs) Exactly. So before we talk about the Schitt's Creek stuff, which I think is going to be so fun, can we talk about your ADHD diagnoses first? Yes, absolutely. Can you tell us what the circumstances around your diagnoses were? Yes. So I think like a lot of people I have heard on your podcast before, I was diagnosed later in life. And I think it's probably a pretty common experience for some people that uh, during the pandemic, they started watching a lot more video content on social media. And I was fed a lot of videos about other women in their 20s and 30s and 40s and beyond with how they got diagnosed with ADHD and how they had all of these symptoms all of their life and didn't really get it put together until later on. And I think a lot of those videos started making me go, oh, that kind of resonates, but I don't have ADHD because XYZ, I was always fine in school and I hold a professional job and have been in it for you know a fair amount of time and don't have a lot of the common tropes that you hear of associated with ADHD. And then I started talking to a couple of uh, people that I work with and they disclosed to me that they had ADHD. And I thought, man, I am really good at making friends with people with ADHD. Uh, (laughs) My partner has ADHD and I'm just, you know, I'm just so cool and understanding and I just get them. (laughs) And then it wasn't until, you know, I was, I, I think 30 or 31 when I started thinking, oh, maybe, maybe it's not, that I attract people with ADHD. (laughs) Maybe it's that we just flock together and I might need to talk to somebody about this to to seek out a diagnosis. (laughs) And so can I ask you, um, when you think back to your childhood, were there any signs there that maybe at the time you didn't recognize were ADHD? Absolutely. I think um, I wasn't disruptive I was I was a fairly quiet kid, but I was incredibly good at school. Like I liked impressing teachers. I liked being the first one in my class to finish. I liked being able to help other kids out who didn't understand concepts as easily. So I was always really good in school. 
But I look back and think, oh, but there were a lot of other things going on that should have probably tipped off people if they knew what to look for. Um, I was, I, I think I exhibited symptoms of hyperfocus uh, even as a child. I was a voracious reader. For example, I remember my elementary school had this prize called the Century Book Club where if you read 100 books over the course of your time at this particular elementary school, you would get your name up on the wall in the cafeteria, and it would stay there for years and years and years. And uh, the first year that I was at this elementary school, I was like, I'm going to get my name up in the cafeteria, join the Century Book Club. I ended up joining the Century Book Club every year I was at that elementary school. It was supposed (laughs) to be cumulative over the course of the three years, but I did it every single year because I was hyper-focused on that reading goal and I just really liked reading. But yeah, hyper-focus was definitely something that was in there, uh, just a constant need to be creative. And I think that reflected in sort of just, I think a lot of little kids are weird, but I think it sort of reflected in me just being kind of a weird little kid who liked doing all kinds of different things and not sitting still once I was done with the math test. (laughs) You know, that is so interesting what you just said, because I never really thought of the whole reading thing as hyper-focus, but I had the exact same thing. And so then if there was any kind of challenge around it, I always Mm -hmm. wanted to be the one that would meet that challenge. Mm -hmm. And so like you, I read all the time. In fact, when I got in trouble, my parents would take my books away. I mean, that was, you know, which is, I don't know. I don't know that I would do that as a parent today, <laughs> but it was the only thing that I seemed to really, really care about. Uh-huh. Yeah. I do remember getting in trouble um, for being caught in my bedroom late at night under the covers with a yes, flashlight in the flashlight. book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which is fine. It's good to encourage kids to read, but probably not so far after their Two bedtime the that they're sleep deprived the next day. <laughs> Yeah. So you mentioned a lot of um, what could be seen as quite positive ADHD symptoms, and then they wouldn't be symptoms. They'd be strengths. Were there any weaknesses? Was there any emotional dysregulation or, you know, trouble socially or anything like that? Emotional dysregulation, yeah, probably a little bit. I think I had a a pretty significant fear of authority, not like in a healthy way. I was definitely the type of person to want to please my parents, my teachers, all of the adults around me. Yeah, and I remember like behavior management techniques that teachers would use just in their classrooms that I was so afraid of being used on me because, you know, I think it would make me a terrible person to, you know, pull a card or whatever, move to from green to yellow or whatever their behavior charts were, uh, that it, it didn't give me a good sense of safety in the classroom because it, it just felt like you were always at risk of certain things. And I don't think that's necessarily a healthy response to, you know, common behavior management techniques in the classroom. Mm. Um, I would also say, because I was a good student, I developed a mechanism of not feeling like I had to try very hard because things came pretty easily for me. And that definitely caught up to me for sure in high school when when harder classes and harder concepts came around, like chemistry, where you really have to take the time and spend time in the material and learn how to study. And I don't think I had a good sense of how to study because Things were just easy for me. 
Wow. I can totally relate to that as well, um, especially in high school where it was almost, I felt, well, I went to a Catholic school. And so at the time, it was all girl. It still is all girl, actually. But at the time, it was almost as if they didn't really care about science and math as much as, you know, social studies and history and writing and, you know, that things were neat and perfect visually. And so because of that, I feel like I was able to snow the teachers. Mm -hmm. So silly things like chemistry lab, I would type the lab. And the fact Ah. that it was so imperfect, they would give me an A+. Uh But then when I got to college, things changed a little bit. And so I'm curious what happened with you then. Well, I went to an alternative college. (laughs) So I... So were you struggling already in high school with certain subjects? You know, when I when I talk to other people about it, I don't often think that I struggled in high school, but I do make a lot of self-deprecating jokes about it. Because when I was mm-hmm. in high school, I learned how easy it was to get out of class and uh, write fake notes to get excused absences. <laughs> uh, and I also lived very close to campus, so sometimes I would just go home for periods of the day. But yeah, I, I like I said, I struggled in chemistry. And initially, you know, when you're a freshman, sophomore in high school, you start to really think concretely about what life looks like after high school. And I had uh, planned actually on becoming a winemaker because Fresno State has an enology program, which is the study ah. of winemaking. Mm-hmm. But in order to get into the enology program, you have to be able to pass chemistry. And I think I got a D in chemistry. And it wasn't because my chemistry teacher wasn't great. He was. I just didn't put in the work to learn how to understand concepts. So I would say maybe my path was altered by my struggles in high school, but I was able to frame it in a way of, well, that's fine. I have another shiny object that I can, you know, pay attention to and focus on and pursue. And that pointed me towards the Evergreen State College. And the Evergreen State College is a little bit unique in that you don't have letter grades. You um, get narrative evaluations after your programs, and you don't take individual classes typically. You take a program which allows you to study with the same group of people over either a quarter, two quarters, or the entire year and go really deep into Um, a variety of topics with a specific lens. So for example, my junior year of college, I took one program for the entire year. So I was with the same, you know, 40 to 50 other students and had three professors. And we looked at food policy, food science, uh, cultural stuff with food, biology stuff with food. All the topics that we studied was through the lens of food. So it was all very interdisciplinary and It allows for you, rather than to get a letter grade and be competitive with your peers, your progress is based on your individual achievements and your individual growth within the course of the time that you're in that program. So in that way, I think that type of school attracts a lot of neurodivergent folks, including myself, even though I didn't know it at the time. So I'm curious, the study of food, nutrition, all of that, Was that actually something that was really interesting to you versus, for example, chemistry, where you kind of had this end goal, but when you 
sat down and tried to study chemistry, it was like, I don't really care about this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Having having concrete implications of what like the different chemical makeups in your recipe makes a difference for is just like completely light on switch on to from interesting to or uninteresting to interesting. Hmm. And so can I ask you in high school, you said that, I mean, clearly in elementary school, it sounds like school was just a breeze for you. Mm -hmm. But then in high school, it got harder. And you mentioned that you weren't at school a lot. You would find reasons to go home. Why did you feel like you needed to go home? Hmm. (laughs) I think I often skipped the classes that I didn't need to do a lot of work in. Uh, because they were easy. It wasn't that I skipped so often in certain classes that I failed those classes. It was the ones that I was able to breeze through that I was just like, it's just busy work in a lot of these ones. You were bored? I was bored. I even graduated high school a semester early because it, mm-hmm. it just felt like they were they had so much time allotted for you to be in class when the requirements to graduate did not take four years. Exactly. And I think this is really interesting too. The comment that it sounded like what you said was that you didn't even know how to study. Mm -hmm. And I can completely relate to that. Until I went to law school, I think I just memorized stuff. And because I was pretty good at that, I sort of floated through. It wasn't until law school where I had to not only, well, I don't even know if I memorized things. I think what I did is I learned things. Mm-hmm. I understood how things worked mm-hmm. and were, was able to take the information and then create arguments around it. Whereas before it was just memorizing and vomiting on the page, whatever they wanted. Yeah. Can you and I, I still don't know if I would say that I have, uh, you know, a, a system down pat for how to study because when I got to Evergreen, mm-hmm. So I I actually went to Evergreen two times, but by the time that I discovered the love of uh, food and a desire to study food and nutrition, um, I was just so interested in it. I was so interested in it that it didn't necessarily feel like work because I was just so voraciously learning about everything I was so interested in. So you're saying you feel like you've never really learned how to study, but what you've learned is that when you're really interested in something... You learn it. So you Absolutely. learn how to study that way. Yeah. Maybe that's just the secret is don't ever study anything you're not interested in. <laughs> well, and I think that is a secret for our ADHD brain, sure, right? Sure. And fortunately, the not education always system, yeah, they go deep. I mean, they go wide instead of deep. And honestly, I think that's the problem. Okay. So you were diagnosed then about how long ago? I think it's been about a year and a half. And what were the things that made you, I mean, if everything is a strength, and for some of us, I really think that, I mean, for me, eh, you know what, everything was not a strength with ADHD. There's always something that, hey, if you could get rid of that, you know, particular symptom, you would. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm wondering, what were the things that you always wondered about that you were like, ah, is everybody going through this? Why is, or is it just me? Like why the ADHD diagnoses at, what were you then? Like 30? 30, 31, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I would say a, a symptom that has been prevalent that I haven't mentioned yet is I am not an organized person by nature. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, in elementary school having to do our teachers would make us all, all of the whole class organize their desk at the same time. And there yep. were some, some students that were able to keep it organized until the next desk organization day. And I was just like, not that person. And I'm still not necessarily that person, but I will say that uh, getting medicated has been hugely impactful for my ability to be organized in my life. Were you the kid that, or maybe, I don't know, maybe your teacher didn't do this or teachers didn't do this where, you know, the kids that had really messy desks, they would literally open up the desk with you, throw all the stuff on the floor and make you start over? (laughs) Uh, No, but I do remember that kid in my class and being horrified at the idea that that could be me if I didn't get myself together. (laughs) Ah, So it was the fear that kind of kept you at least organized enough not to be that kid. Yes, I would say, and that that continues to be true, is fear of the whoever has the power or holds the power, I think, in, in my life, that they will find out about how secretly messy or secretly disorganized I am, and that would be the worst thing. So, so I think for a while it was... Um, maybe in high school or college when I was dating, like I need to keep my car clean in case we ever drive somewhere. And I don't want him to think that I'm this completely, you know, (laughs) goblin person with messy car and room and life. And even though I was that secret goblin person and probably (laughs) still am a little bit, but the medication helps. (laughs) So can I ask what medication um, you take? Yes, I am taking, I take uh, Vyvanse and dextroamphetamine. So I think since I have been medicated, it has been a constant, um, constant challenge to hone in on the specific doses that work for me. So currently testing out a new dose with my um, psychiatrist and Mm -hmm. it's a, it's in a current flux. It'll like work for some things, but not for other things, or it'll work really great to keep attention and then I can't sleep at night. So it's, yeah. it hasn't been quite nailed down yet, but um, I'm having a lot of success with those two medications. And literally you take this medication and for whatever reason, you can be so much more organized. I think when I think about the level of organization, it gives me, it's like an ability to plan and initiate and follow through on tasks, including tasks that are designed to help me keep my life organized, like making sure I always have clean clothes to wear and making sure that my devices are charged and making sure that the old food is cleaned out of the fridge and that I have a plan to make groceries and have food for the week. Stuff like that has historically been a challenge and is made easier with medication. Do you think that neurotypical people ever feel like they're on top of stuff, like on top of their life, I guess is what I would say? Or do you think that, and I don't, I, I'm assuming you feel the way I do and our listeners feel the way I do, but I always feel like I'm behind in everything, even though I feel like I work all the time. That's a good question. I think sometimes... I would say, no, nobody has their life figured out and everybody's got something. And then I think about like when 
other people like share their experience with me if that's like direct or via memes on social media. And then I wonder, well, maybe the memes on social media I'm seeing are just a feedback loop of like this echo chamber I have created. And maybe there's more neurodivergent people around me than average. (laughs) So I don't know. That's a that's a good question. Yeah. I I often wonder if it's it's just our thoughts. Well, it can't just be our thoughts because as you said, you know, it takes more for you to keep the organization going so it doesn't mm-hmm. get out of control, which I think most neurotypicals feel like they probably don't even worry about that, right? And so I almost feel like it's the thoughts around the fact that I don't know, I always feel busy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wonder I don't think other people, I don't think neurotypical people always feel busy. I think that they, I I don't think this, I know this, right? Because I Uh have friends that are neurotypical and they can just relax. They can just sit down and see a movie and not think about, oh my gosh, I need to do this, this, and this. And so Mm -hmm. I could do those things while I watch the movie. And then I don't even know what the movie's about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what has changed since you were diagnosed? I think I give myself a little bit more grace than I did to not hold myself to a a standard that I think maybe should be reserved for neurotypicals, but maybe no one should hold themselves to a completely high standard. But I think it, it gives me just a lot more perspective on why I am the way that I am and why I've been the way that I have been my entire life. And it allows me to empathize with other people who have ADHD and recognize their specific giftedness uh, in the context of work environments, definitely. What else has changed? I am a more empathetic person in general, no matter who I am working with. I would think that would make a big difference in how you relate to other people. Yeah, I think it does. So one of the things I forgot to ask you about, but I do know about you, is you had over 20 jobs before you found (laughs) your career, and you've started a lot of different businesses, and you've moved 14 times in the last 14 years. I thought about that this morning, and I thought, oh, I forgot that time that I moved to the Bay Area and then back to my hometown. So it's it's 16 times, actually. <laughs> but yes, I, I think in my uh, late teens and early 20s, I, had, I was just in a constant stage of flux trying to figure out who I was, where I should be in the world, what I wanted for myself. And that resulted in moving a lot uh, and changing jobs a lot and not necessarily out of, you know, I could see the writing on the wall and knew I was going to get fired or did get fired, although that did happen a couple of times. I just liked so much having new experiences and putting Mm -hmm. myself in new environments that that was really the motivating factor. And I remember once in college having a a roommate reflect back to me that she thought I was constantly falling into the trap of thinking the grass is greener on the other side and thinking, I don't, maybe, maybe that's it, but maybe I just want to experience new types of grass. So her comment didn't shame you 
it almost served the opposite purpose where it just gave you this comparison around, well, maybe I just have a different personality and I like these experiences. Oh, I did think it also time, shame you. <laughs> I think at the time it felt a little shaming in mm-hmm. that maybe I wondered, well, why why am I like this when this particular roommate who was saying that seems so stable and seems on top of herself and seems uh-huh. to know what she wants in the specific direction that she's going in life. And at the time I didn't, even though I, I feel like I have a lot of that stability now, um, that it now I can look back and reflect and say, yeah, I was more interested in learning about the types of grass than I was figuring out which one was the best necessarily. But yeah, I don't know if I took it that way at the time. But are you so appreciative today of all these experiences of living in these different places, trying these different, you know, jobs and careers on? Oh, heavens, yes. I feel like every time I meet a new person, I go into that with an assumption that we have several things in common. I just have to figure out what it is, whether that's I've lived in a similar region to where they're from or I have you know, tried out different jobs that they have experience with or, you know, tried out this litany of hobbies that they've also dabbled in. So I think it does absolutely impact how I interact with other people. And it gives me so much more common ground to, or so much more ground rather, to find common ground between myself and another person. That's so interesting. I've never heard someone word it uh, in the way you just did, but I can completely relate. So it sounds like when you meet someone, you do what I do, which is where can I connect with this person? Yeah. I love that. Okay. So I want to know, we're going to shift here, all about the Schitt's Creek cookbook. How did it come about? How did you come up with the idea? Why did you do it? When did you do it? All of it. Yeah. So I think I would put it as like one of those shows that once you start watching it, or at least for me, I don't want to universalize my experience, but I think a lot of people have this experience that once you watch Schitt's Creek, it becomes like a comfort show that you can return to over and over again and still get the jokes and still laugh about and just fall in love with all of the characters. So I think a a strong connection to the show was the first part. And then I had gotten into, this is completely separate from that, self-publishing as a way of developing passive income, side income, a number of years ago and was interested in doing uh, different types of journals or coloring books just as like a creative outlet. And then I remember talking to my sister one time and just being like, I had told her a little bit about the self-publishing that I was doing and how fun it was. And I just texted her one time and was like, what if we just made a cookbook about Schitt's Creek? Wouldn't (laughs) that be fun? Wouldn't it be such an opportunity to write in funny jokes and then publish something online. So that was really the catalyst. And as soon as I said that, it clearly resonated with her because we just started texting back and forth with all of these different recipe titles that were jokey and fun, tied into the show, but were also clever because my sister is incredibly funny and clever. And then it it just, the list got bigger and bigger and bigger of all of these potential recipe ideas. And then from there, it was like, okay, well we might have something here 
let's just go for it. So that was the catalyst for the first iteration of the book. So we self-published it, put it out online. And what year would this have been? This would have been December of 2020. So I think it was probably, I think it got put out about mid-month December of 2020, which means that it was just before the holiday season, kind of got some traffic, but it, it, we really missed the big like Christmas shopping season. And well, then still kind of COVID, right? Oh yeah, definitely. So is definitely. this when it came about this whole idea, you guys are sitting there, you're bored, you're stuck at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're like, Let's write a cookbook. Yeah. So this was absolutely still in the throes of COVID. I was in Washington. My sister lives in California and she works in healthcare and She's a speech pathologist, but she doesn't uh, normally wouldn't have worked in an an environment like this with COVID patients, except for it was so big and it was everywhere. So she did work with COVID patients in the hospital that she worked at. So Mm -hmm. she was, you know, isolated, not being around people because she was around people with COVID all day. And so I didn't get to see her. And um, that was really hard because I'm used to seeing my my sister a little bit more frequently than that. So it was definitely a way of being able to maintain a connection to her in a really fun, silly way uh, while it feels like the world is burning and make funny jokes about food and TV together. And so were you both really into like, did you grow up around, like, did you love to cook? And was this a big deal in your family? And uh. I would say, yeah, my my mother cooked dinner most nights. So I think uh, the the having a ritual around food and cooking was definitely present. And by this time, I had you know finished college and was very into food uh, and cooking. And you know, I had done some stuff with recipe development. And I think my sister is a little bit less so that way, but she still cooks and has uh, an eye towards nutrition and um, enjoys making recipes. And she's an incredibly talented baker. I am not a baker, but she's a baker. So yeah, I think we, we both brought our own strengths to the project around uh, a food. And we also grew up in uh, the central Valley of California, which is where so much food production happens that Mm -hmm. agriculture is, is just sort of the, the water around you really living in that area. So yeah, I would say both a a fairly decent, strong food background that was the backbone of us being able to put a project like this together. So you self-published in December of 2020. And then what happened? We self-published and the book slowly kind of took off. (laughs) Um, over the course of 2021, we, oh boy, we sold a lot more copies than most self-published books do. I can't remember our total amount. I think it was somewhere in the seven or 8,000 copy range, just Mm -hmm. as this independent cookbook. And then in, I want to say September of 2021, we got contacted by a publishing company that expressed interest in potentially taking our cookbook from being self-published to being traditionally published. And at first it was like, is this real? This is so silly. This is just our little old published cookbook. 
Uh, <laughs> but it turns out it was a real offer. So we uh, were in negotiations with this uh, publishing house for a little while. <laughs> and it's funny, we had done fairly well as uh, independent authors being self-published that we really had to think like, is this financially uh, a good choice to go to self or to go to mm-hmm. a traditional publisher? Because we did pretty well with the self-published version. We would have to sell a lot of copies for it to be lucrative enough. Plus, it's going to be a lot of work to develop it out. We had to double the amount of recipes and um, we're in very long uh, process to edit the, the recipes and edit the entire book. Uh, but ultimately, we decided, yeah, we really do want our names on books that are in real bookstores instead of just on the internet. <laughs> so you did it, I'm assuming. Did right? it. We did it. And how much and work was it? What It was like, so what much was work. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much work. It was fast-tracked. So I think the process was a little bit more rigorous than other uh, cookbooks might be. But we had to develop all like like I said half uh half doubled the recipes so twice as many recipes so we had to come up with all of these recipes and do like rapid fire recipe testing trying to rope in as many people that were willing to work with us at recipe test from our own networks as possible and then after that it was just like every week we would get chapters back from our editors with all of these edits and we would have to sift through and make sure the wording was still right and yeah, it was just like all of our weekends or a significant portion of our weekends for several months were given up to completing this manuscript. Um, and then I think that wrapped up at the end of May 2022. And then it finally went live in October. Okay. So September through May, that is really fast. Um, you basically had to rewrite the book. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so it was completely out of copy editing and everything by the end of May? Yes. Yeah, that is pretty quick. And then, I'm sorry, when did it hit the stands? It went live and launched in October of 2022. So just before uh, the Christmas season last year. And how did it do? I think it went really well. It's it's funny, going from self-published to traditional publishing was like, night and day as far as the metrics go and the data that we had to see how well it was doing. So with self-publishing, it's like every day I can look at how many sales went out and have a good running total in my head. And with this, we had no idea until January or so how it was doing. And so far, I think we have sold over 13,000 copies in that first quarter. Granted, it was a, a you know holiday shopping season, so a pretty quarter. So we'll see how it goes next year, but really we're only going to get sales data every six months. And so is your publisher happy? I think they're happy. Yeah. Would you do it again? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> One People would- don't understand how hard it is to write a book with a traditional publisher. It was so much work. It was so much work. And it's interesting because I have now several years of self-publishing under my belt that it was good for me to be able to contextualize, okay, these are pretty significant differences between self-publishing and traditional publishing where, yes, they have a lot more reach, obviously, and they have you know, in-house PR people to put the name out there and send sample copies to people that, you know, might write articles or share news stories, what have you. But 
I have so little creative freedom compared to when I self-publish books. Yep. And I'm on someone else's timeline. I am, you know, giving up weekends and I don't really have a choice about it because I still have a day job and I can't just work on it as I see fit. Plus, there are all these other people that have their fingers in the pie. (laughs) So I am taking in all of their feedback and doing things that they're asking. Whereas if I'm just self-publishing, it's just a lot of, okay, Rachel, what do you want? Well, I think we want this. Let's do that. (laughs) Which I think is really hard for our ADHD brains, right? We're Mm -hmm. basically told what to do and everything's a negotiation and you get to the point where you just sort of say, okay, whatever you want. I just want it over. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It kind of did feel like that at the end. And that's not necessarily a reflection on the publisher because they're great and they obviously have Years of experience in a commercial market. Yeah, I know what they're doing. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But it was was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. And (laughs) the thing about the Schitt's Creek cookbook is a lot of the recipes are kind of stick to your ribs, middle America, you know, southern Canada type cuisine that is not necessarily how I eat on a daily basis. Yeah. So recipe testing Dorito casserole several times is like... (laughs) I also don't like food waste. (laughs) So there's part of me that's like, okay, I made this Dorito casserole and I need to get through it. And if it's not great, then I have to try it again and tweak something. And it's a lot physically to eat so much Dorito casserole. And um, yeah, so it it did take a toll (laughs) for sure. So what's your favorite recipe? Oh, goodness. Like literally, if you had to make something out of your cookbook, this is what you'd make. (laughs) Well, I can instantly think of my favorite cocktail out of the book. uh, And that is the hair of the mutt. Uh, (laughs) And I like it so much. It's, it's like boozy ice cream. It's uh, whiskey, maple syrup and heavy cream, which you can't (laughs) go wrong with. It's like a, it's a dessert cocktail, but it is really, really delicious. As far as food goes, Oh boy. I think it's a an out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that I'd have to go grab one off my shelf to figure out which was my favorite um food recipe. But there are there are certainly ones in there that are ones that are in my regular repertoire. Um I think one of my favorite ones that we were able to include is this really funky uh jello based dessert that was uh, a family staple. Oranges? What was that? The one with the oranges? Uh, it's got limes in it, or okay. it's not got limes in it. It's called lock and key lime pie, ah. but it doesn't have real mm-hmm. limes in it. It's got lime jello, but it was a, a family favorite of my father's. So we would always my eat this on his birthday. Is literally open to that. That is too <laughs> weird. And that's when I learned so many things. This book is hilarious because I watched. Uh, Shit's Creek, not all the episodes by any stretch of the imagination, but I learned so much about it from your book. For example, that the cast is related, that it's filmed in Canada, that Mm -hmm. Dan Levy is the one who created it. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Of course, Moira is the woman from Home Alone, which I actually think I knew before. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm not sure that I learned that from your cookbook. But the biggest thing is that, and this is what's on the lock and key lime pie, you know, it's the trivia piece on that particular recipe, is that Schitt's Creek is over. I didn't even know it was over. (laughs) Yep, it is over. All seven seasons. And when did it end? Oh, I'm not good with dates. Probably 2019, something like that. Wait a minute, but we were watching it during COVID. Was it being, was it still being made during COVID though? Well, I thought so, but obviously <laughs> not. I Maybe had no not. idea. Maybe it was 2020. I kind of, I kind of think it was over though, before we started the cookbook, but don't quote me on that. Really? Okay. We're going to have to find that out. In fact, you know what? I'm Googling it right now. Hold on. When did Schitt's Creek end? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I think you're right. I just well, April seventh of 2020 was the final episode. So literally, okay. right around when you started, right? The first time was it? Mm-hmm. When did you start the first time you said it was later in 2020, but September, yeah, September. Oh, December 2020. No, oh, uh, that was when we published it. Okay, so you would have been working on this maybe right around the time that it ended. Uh, I think it was later in in the fall in 2020. Wow, you did it that quickly the first time. Well, when you self-publish, you can can do things pretty quickly. And I think that's sort of where hyper-focus comes into. (laughs) Yeah. Now, did you do all your own photography as well? So in the initial self-published version, there were no photos. Oh, okay. (laughs) Which is is shocking. It's a pretty plain manuscript. Um, And I think it really relies on the jokes and the love that people have for the show uh, as to why they would purchase the book. And I think the second version obviously is incredibly polished. um, But no, we did not do our own photos. The the publishing house contracted out with a, a food photographer. You know, and it's interesting that the show would have been no longer, it wasn't canceled. I think it was Dan Levy, right? Who decided <laughs> that we'd done everything we can do. I think you told me that in this book. We've done everything we can do. So we're going to end the show. Mm-hmm. And yep. the show, with had, a bang. it had ended, yet your traditional publisher still wanted you to write the book. So it yes. must be more popular in like, what do they call them? Reruns? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think uh, definitely during COVID, a lot of people discovered it, but it started and was a pretty um, quiet show for a bit until it got uh, picked up. I want to say by American networks that because yeah. it's a it's a Canadian show. It is a Canadian produced show filmed in Canada. Yeah. Most of the actors are Canadian, and the Canadian market is just not huge. I mean, there's about as many people in Canada as there are in California. So, mm-hmm. thinking about the audience it's not going to have nearly as much impact when it's it's you know being primarily viewed by just a small country but then when it hit the american audience it was like way wider and attracted a lot more viewers and i think that's really when it took off was when it americans started to notice yeah. it which does not necessarily speak to its quality because it is a funny show and uh-huh. it is like purely canadian and i know i have Uh, gotten some criticism about my sister and I being American and we wrote this cookbook and are obviously not Canadian. Like, why do these two Americans get to write this book? Well, I don't know. Because you didn't do it. We didn't ask. We just did it. (laughs) So I'm curious about the dog treat recipe. Do you have a dog? You you do have a dog, right? No. I don't have a dog. No. Uh, 
<laughs> dog treats. One of uh, a previous entrepreneurial endeavor when I was... <laughs> Even though you had no dog, really? Well, so I used to have a dog. When I was a uh-huh. kid, I had a dog. Um, but I get so much of my entrepreneurial spirit and mindset from my mother, who is also mm-hmm. a serial entrepreneur. And when I was probably in middle school or so, we <laughs> held a booth at a craft fair, or like a community festival type thing. Um, and did dog homemade dog treats. And we did have dogs at the time. So we did get to test them out. Uh, so do they really like those? Because we were just told your dogs need more pumpkin, which is part of the <laughs> pooping problem. <laughs> huh. uh, I don't know if our versions then had pumpkin. Uh, mm-hmm. This one does though, right? This one does. My yes. husband on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I am curious. I remembered my question. Have you heard either directly or indirectly from any members of the cast about this cookbook? No, no, I <laughs> I haven't. And there's part of me that's terrified to think that Dan Levy would know that I exist. Uh, <laughs> because I don't know if this book would live up to the level of quality that I think he is really known for. Um, but no, we we haven't heard from any anyone from the show or anything. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I'm a lawyer and I didn't realize that, oh, you could just write a book, you know, yeah, um, about like a show and just call it the unofficial Schitt's Creek cookbook. I love it. Yeah, that was definitely something that our publisher helped us navigate because they do uh, both unofficial and official uh, types of ah. cookbooks and other stuff, um, depending on, you know, whose estate they're working with or if they have the rights to it. And so they know kind of how to navigate the intellectual property piece to, you know, protect yourself from not infringing on other people's intellectual property. But you, you did this the first time and you didn't, I mean, there was no problem. Yeah, we were definitely nervous and tried to be really (laughs) careful about it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm not a lawyer. So we, you know, did our best and didn't necessarily know if what we were doing was the right thing. But it definitely gave us a lot more uh, comfort knowing that our publishers would know how to handle that type of thing. Yeah. So I've watched many episodes of Shit's Creek, but like many of us, when we're watching TV, we're doing a million things at the same time. So <laughs> I have to admit that I didn't really know the real personalities of the characters. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend who would regularly tell me that I'm Moira Rose <laughs> and my husband is Johnny Rose. And in the back of my mind, I was always thinking that is not a compliment. So <laughs> in honor of you, I consulted the Dr. Google and I typed in, what is Moira Rose's personality? And this is what came up. Moira Rose is spoiled, eccentric, and exceedingly dramatic. Nearly everything she does, whether it is attending a town council meeting or babysitting a child, is completed with a kind of theatrical flair. So then I looked further down the Google, and I saw that Moira Rose is an ENFP, which is, you know, a Meyer Briggs personality Uh type. And it made me laugh because I'm like, I'm an ENFP. And I said that people with ADHD tend to be ENFPs if they're hyperactive combined type, and INFPs if they're inattentive. 
And so I kept reading. And then it said, Moira is often coming up with new ideas and projects, often to the bemusement of her family. ENFPs are imaginative and passionate of people who live life to the fullest, just like Moira. Hmm. She is always up for a new adventure, no matter how crazy it may be. There is no denying that Moira (laughs) Rose dreams big. As a typical ENFP, Moira can also be quite impulsive and scatterbrained at times, which can lead to her family getting frustrated with her. By the end of reading that, I'm like, my friend is right. I am Moira Rose. (laughs) Does that resonate? (laughs) Many of us with ADHD are are Moira (laughs) Rose. Um, So I just, I found that actually really humorous. Um, And so I will now wear the moniker of Moira Rose proudly, although not the wigs. (laughs) Not the wigs. So... I, I just love I just love the whole Shit's Creek cookbook story and how it came about. And so I want to know, what do you think are the traits of ADHD, your ADHD traits that you feel are responsible for for your success? Hmm. I think hyper focus is definitely one that enabled success with this cookbook. I think it has like you were talking about the education system, how it it has more breadth than depth. And I think my ability to go deep is really what has given me success in a lot of ways. I think with um, food in particular and finding a passion and a love for food, it has enabled me to find a job that I really love and care about and am stable in and, you know, in continue to be interested after multiple years, after so many years of job hopping. So hyper-focus for sure. I also think that the, I don't know if there is a better word for it, but the concept of shiny object syndrome, of just being so curious about so many things and wanting to learn new things and have new experiences has made me certainly a more interesting person to outsiders, but also more interesting to myself to, to have had so many different types of experiences and want to learn so many things is I think uh, one of the things that makes it joyful for me to be alive and uh, to have success and an interesting life. Yeah. Do you have an ADHD uh, workaround, a number one ADHD workaround? Oh, for me lately, it has been Google Calendar, Google Calendar and setting timers. Yeah. And I, it wasn't until I started listening to your podcast that I learned how, how uh, what a successful tool that was for so many of us. So I went out and bought the Datex cube that you've talked about. I set my timer every time I, you know, am cooking something or need to move laundry or am just committing to showing up at a task that I don't want to do for 10 minutes. But that has been a really impactful tool. And then the Google alerts on my calendar is like, I don't forget things because I set Google alerts and I just have trained myself to set things in my calendar as soon as I need to do have an appointment or a task. Absolutely. You're, you've basically built your structure, right? I, yep. And you don't have, have to worry. Built my structure. Yep. Yeah. I love it. So Rachel, where can people find you if they want to know more about you? They want to know more about this book? Like where can they go? Uh, the best way to find me casually is probably just Instagram, Rachel J. Floyd or at Rachel J. Floyd. And I also have um, my link to my business account from there, uh, Little Bison Press, where I do the kids' activity books. That's my current uh, self-publishing project that is taking the most time away from 
you know, my day job and personal life. Do you have a website? I do. It's uh, racheljfloyd.com. Well, you make that easy. So website is racheljfloyd.com. Instagram is at racheljfloyd and at Little Bison Press, correct? You got it. Okay. And we'll have all of that in the show notes. Rachel, thank you so much for hanging in with me here. This was uh, our second, uh, I had to cancel the first time. So I really appreciate that we were able to finally make it work. And thank you for spending time with us here today. Thank you for having me. But also, I wanted to thank you for the greater community that you have built. It has been such a valuable asset to be able to show up in online spaces with other women with ADHD and be able to learn from them and talk to them and interact with them. And and then listen to your podcast is like a parasocial relationship that I have had with you. I don't know if you've <laughs> known that. And so many other guests <laughs> to be able to learn from their successes and just have my mind blown when I'm able to make connections between you know, what they're going through and what I'm going through. It has been really, really great, especially early on in my diagnosis to to have these resources. So thank you for the hand that you have had in, in creating that. You're very welcome. There is support in numbers, isn't there? Yes. I love it. So thank you again, Rachel. And that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Rachel, let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.